Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. Hey everyone, Evan Lewis back with another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. This week I'm joined by a man who needs a little introduction. David Chilton, author of The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns, former dragon on Dragon's Den, and a very famous Canadian entrepreneur. He's a personal mentor of mine, and we had a really great chat about entrepreneurship, investing, publishing, and just about everything in between. Listen up, you're going to enjoy it. In our last conversation, you you know, were very clear that you've seen a lot of not-so-good business ideas recently, so I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about you know, what you think founders are missing today um, and whether uh, you know, not necessarily so grounded with their business ideas. Well, it's interesting. In April and May uh, of this year, I looked at a lot of fintech ideas, probably 12, and uh, did uh, a second round of due diligence beyond the initial meetings and maybe eight or nine cases. And frankly, I was extremely unimpressed. And I don't have a great digital background, so it may sound funny coming from me to be critical, but I was quite shocked at how little thought had been given to the marketing end of things. So here's our concept. Here's the part of the industry we're targeting. We think you can disrupt, which of course is the word that's used ad nauseum in every meeting you have, but very little on how we're going to get at that target customer. How are we going to get past inertia, which by the way is everybody's biggest competitor, but especially when you're dealing in fintech because you've got to get people to go away from their comfort zone. They're accustomed to dealing with banks or traditional money management firms. They've got their accounts all set up. Trying to get them to deviate from 50 years or 30 years of that type of behavior is tough. So you've got to rise above the noise, you've got to be outstanding marketers, and most of the people who approached me had no marketing plan. So rather than having a bad one, they didn't have one. And they're relying on going viral, in quotes, that type of thing, or a tremendous word of mouth. But remember, most of these ideas don't have a networking effect. These aren't the Facebooks of the world, where you connect and your friends connect and so on and so forth. You've got to go out and get these people one by one. There'll be some word of mouth, unquestionably. But in general, this is going to be a very tough marketing play. You know, you read a lot from people much savvier than I am in the tech space, and they're saying this is the missing ingredient in so many of these instances. The companies don't have good marketing plans. Uh, they don't have cost-effective ways to get uh, out there and do it well. I thought zero to one, which was an outstanding yeah. read, you know, very different than most other books. I thought it was amazing. But he had a great section on that yeah. and how that's the missing quality in so many of the founders' uh, skill sets and also how the plans don't even make sense in a lot of instances. So I ran into a lot of that. But even beyond that, I didn't think many of the ideas were very good, frankly. And I think that a lot of the... Uh, founders had come up with ideas that if you step back made little sense. For example, a lot of them wanted to get involved in uh, wealth management for millennials and here's why we can position ourselves to be different. Well, millennials don't have much money. I mean, forget tech, forget non-tech, forget anything. I mean, being a wealth manager for people without money doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think I could have said that in grade eight. <laughs> and so that's, a, that's the kind of thing I think I saw a lot of. People are so into disruption that they're not taking two steps back to think through but is there really merit to the big picture idea? Forget whether it's digital or conventional, et cetera. So yeah, I wasn't overly impressed, but amazingly several of those companies within a month of me passing found funding at reasonable valuations from their perspective. I'm not sure they're reasonable from the investor's perspective and, and off they go. It, it is a hot space right now. Yeah. And you know, you look at the number of ideas being pitched all over the world, Europe in particular seems to be a very creative on the FinTech idea. And, and frankly, if I were a bank, I'd be nervous. I mean, when, at the end of the day, a bank is nothing more than information. That's all a bank is. 
And if that's what you are, and you're moving toward the digital revolution, you're going to have a lot of competitors coming up from underneath. Right. So let's talk a little bit just on that about valuations, because I think back to when I was doing ePROF, my startup, and you know we're going through this accelerator program, and it's drilled into you as a tech founder that you know if you're at this stage, you're you know a year in, you're at seed stage, you, your your company needs to be worth four or five million dollars, right? right? So you're going to investors talking like you know your company's worth that much, but then maybe you've got recurring revenues of Zero. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> no, so, like, you know, let's talk about valuations and just how, like, startup founders really need to get their head in check and not put the cart before the horse. They need to sell and get to, you know, X amount of recurring revenue before they're talking about those valuations. I, I, the whole valuation thing, because I'm old, is really tough for me. Like, yeah. I come from a traditional investment analysis background where you're using multiples of earnings and sales and everything else. And, of course, you can't do that in this space. And, admittedly, I've learned so much more about digital. I was, I was really, frankly... Uh, not very knowledgeable uh, two and three years ago, it can scale like no other type of business. The home runs can be of such a nature that can justify some of these and you've got to invest in a lot of them knowing failure is going to be the norm but the one or two home runs will carry the portfolio. But all that being said, I still shake my head at a lot of the valuations because too many of the ideas that I am approached with, I could knock off. So I'll give you a couple <laughs> specific examples. People come in and the idea is just past the idea phase. They've started the coding. And they want a four to five million dollar valuation, as you said, for whatever reason, that's been drilled in yeah. to young people. That's your first hit. That's where you've got to get. Yeah. And they're showing me what they've got. They've got no marketing plan. They've got no brand power. They've got nothing. The team hasn't even been built out. And I will say to them over and over again, walk me through why I just don't hire somebody to do the coding that you, you're at and, and just own the whole thing. I mean, I can catch you from behind for $200,000 and I can own 100% of it or I can give you 200000 and own 5% of it. It doesn't make much sense. Now, their argument is, you need me. You need me because I'm the genius founder behind this, bringing the passion, bringing the skills. But remember, in most cases, even though these are bright young people, mm -hmm. they're still inexperienced. They haven't got proven track records. They don't necessarily have marketing skills, yeah. a key piece to this whole puzzle. Now, they'll also say to me, but you're not going to do it. So you can theorize all you want that you can do it, <laughs> but you won't do it. But in a couple instances, I seriously considered it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, too, all of this comes down to execution. You know, it really does. I mean, you know that. It's, it's all attention yeah. to detail. Can you execute? There's all kinds of founders out there with great ideas, but can they dot their I's and cross their T's and build their team and get past all the obstacles? That's a difficult thing. So you can see why most of the savvy tech investors, ones much more talented than I am, are really investing in the team. Right. The team's ability to pivot, the team's ability to deal with challenges, the team's ability to hire team members going forward that add value, et cetera. And assessing all that takes a lot of time. I'm, I'm always amazed at the number of people who write a check after one meeting. Like I think I've got to sit down with the two or three key people five, ten times before I'm going to write them a check for a quarter million, a half million dollars because it's their skills, it's their charisma, it's their thinking that I'm really investing in much more than it is the idea. Well, I can't assess that in a 45-minute meeting in a crowded restaurant. I've got to have a lot of time with those people. Yeah. So a couple of the founders have been impatient with my approach, but I think at the end of the day it's a good one. And I'm also trying to challenge them a lot about here's why I don't think this is a great idea. And sometimes they have very good answers, but I'm amazed how often... They haven't got an answer because they've never even thought through that whole thing. You know, it's such it's a tough situation being an entrepreneur and that if you were if you were nothing but a realist, you'd never start anything yeah. because the odds of failure are so high. And so it's, it's easy to come up with reasons why something won't work. You have to be an optimist and you have to take a leap of faith. You really do. But you have to be at least grounded in realism. Like you have to be looking at what could we be facing. And you have to factor all that in. And I think, again, I'm not seeing enough of that yeah. as I look at these types of deals. And it's interesting. I would say that of the deals I've looked at in the last two or three years in the digital space, 
uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's none right now that I'm very upset I didn't go with. So I, I think of the ones I've rejected, I've probably made relatively good calls. Now it's early, and two years from now, if one of them explodes, obviously I'll be wrong, and <laughs> way wrong. That's the thing with digital that's so much different than investing in balsamic vinaigrettes or bathroom mats, is none of those is going from X to 1,000X. Mm. They could go from X to 4X. And so if I'm wrong in any of these, then I'm wrong in all of them, because I maybe should have bought into the portfolio approach and hope for one to... To fly, but I, I'm enjoying looking at them. Yeah. I think I'm more likely to invest in something where I'll take a very proactive involvement, mm -hmm. and not just being on the board, but maybe being involved in the day-to-day -day operations. Or if it's a Canadian-oriented fintech company, lending my brand power, my contacts, and so on and so forth. But here, here's my my big issue that you and I've spoken about uh, off tape. Yeah. I think too many of these ideas have absolutely no protection. They have no moat whatsoever and they have no pricing power and margins are bound to be sabotaged going forward and that hasn't been built into the model. So let me give you the example that uh, I think best uh, shows this. I looked at the robo-advisor space really carefully six, seven years ago. So this was before you had Wealthfront in the States, Wealth Simple in Canada, nobody was playing in this space. Mm -hmm. I started out looking at all-encompassing deep financial planning, something that's still not out there because it's a very difficult thing to code. It's tough to get people to enter their information. I'm still drawn to that. Mm -hmm. But I got over to the robo-advisor space because asset allocation and risk tolerance can be assessed very nicely through digital means and so on and so forth. And the advice, therefore, can be rendered and you can roll the portfolio over annually and rebalance it and tax harvest. These are all possibilities. And, of course, many sites now do it wonderfully well. Why didn't I get involved? Very simply it's going to go to a zero cost. It started out with companies charging 40 and 50 basis points on the assets under management, but then you had all these other players come in and announce 30, mm -hmm. 25. Well, somebody's just gonna come in and say, hey, we coded the whole thing for zero. <laughs> take it for free, mm -hmm. and we'll just try to build out the traffic and advertising model, or even worse, they'll just say, take it for free because we're trying to help society. Yep. And I don't make that up, that's exactly what's happening stateside. I ran into a fellow who introduced me to two young men who had the best of the interfaces I've seen. It was the most intuitive, the most friendly, the most well put together. It wasn't Robin Hood, was it? No. Have you heard, have you heard of that? No. You shouldn't look that one up. I will. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's the same type of thing. Yeah. Because these guys are giving it away. Yeah. So they went to one of the big players in the States, and that's where I got this information. And mm -hmm. the guy said, these two young guys walk in. They're quite literally in their early 20s. And we've been working on this for years. He said, and we've spent tens of millions of dollars. These two guys walk in. They haven't spent anything. <laughs> and we all agreed their interface was better than ours. We, we all agree. He said, unanimous across the board, we're all going, holy shit, this is friendlier than ours. It's more intuitive than ours. It's more fun to use than ours. It does the same things ours do. And then these kids tell us they think they're going to give it away. Now, it turns out I don't think they went that path. I've heard rumors that they partner with a financial institution stateside. I don't know. But the point is, these guys developed something better. They were just going to throw online and say, take it for free. And you know how they get eyeballs? They just go out in a PR campaign, a very low-cost PR campaign. They're in touch with the Rob Carricks of the Globe and Mail in Canada. They say, check this site out. Rob looks at it and says, are you kidding? This is better than all the competitors, and there's no charge. And he writes an article on it. It's easy to generate buzz when you're doing something for free that's well done. And I think you're going to see more and more of that because look at the number of incredibly wealthy people now that we have in Canada states, people who've gotten rich through tech or other means that are worth tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in a lot of cases. They want to give back to society. A lot of these digital tools give them an easy way to do that. Mm -hmm. They can come up with all sorts of tools and resources that can help people manage their finances or, for that matter, any other area in their life and say, I'll just pay the coders and pay the people who are designing the site and I'll stick it online for free. So I'll give you a second example. 
when people head into retirement now, one of the challenges is when do they draw from their RSP versus their TFSA, take their pension early, don't all these th things are tough. So you've got Daryl Diamond out there who wrote a book called The Retirement Blueprint, Income Blueprint, that kind of teachings he's doing, the average person's trying to apply. Financial advisors are all being trained. I was sent some code from a U.S. guy. In, the, the software's better than anything I've seen. It's better than any individual who sits across the kitchen table for five hours. This guy's thought of everything, not in the marketplace yet, coming soon. Well, he can give that away for free. Like he could just say, anybody in retirement, take this and use it if he wants to. Now, he could sell it, and if he does sell it, he'll probably do it on a, a model where it's $8 a month. I mean, I'm making it up type thing, but that's where you're headed. So you can see the whole financial services industry has got to be nervous about all of this. And, but it's, it's fascinating to watch. But when I looked at the robo-advisor space, I thought, this is going to zero in terms of the monies you can bring in. Well, sure enough, you know, you look at Wealthfront and all of them now, they're scuffling a bit because Vanguard's got their own site now that's allowing people to do all these exact same things using the Vanguard products, which are obviously very inexpensive and good products. Mm -hmm. It's tough to sustain margins in the digital world. So we always talk about how the digital companies can attack the bricks and mortar companies, can attack the conventional companies. Hell, they can attack each other too. <laughs> and you're going to see more and more of that. So you have to constantly be asking yourself, okay, as we build this, how is our stickiness quotient going to be developed? How do we keep these clients? How do we keep adding enough value to ward off the competitor who knocks us off, same product, lower price? And so the Shopify's of the world, anybody out there has to be thinking that. Now, I like their stickiness yep. because my daughter and other people use their site. It's not that expensive. She doesn't yep. want to switch over, even if it's only a couple days disruption. That's lost sales for a couple days. She'd have to overlap. She'd have to learn how to use the other sites. And again, they don't cost enough for her to think that's a big, so they, she, I like Shopify's model. I yep. think they're on the right track, yep. but I see lots of others where the switch is super easy. And I think, oh, great, somebody comes along and knocks them off at half the price. Why don't people just transition right over? Robo-advisors, again, being the perfect example. So all of this is, is much more challenging than people realize. And I'm finding that not enough investors are thinking through where all this is headed. And I tell you, it's going to be great for the consumer. <laughs> the consumer is the big winner as you see all these things play out over the next five to ten years. One of the things I'm struggling with, you know, I know that I want to be starting a company, you know, another tech company in the next, you know, five years or right. so. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what boxes I definitely need to have checked to say, okay, you know, I'm ready to start that company. For you, you know, in terms of looking at investments, it seems like, you, I mean, you look at so many. What are kind of the, you know, the key things that you need to have these boxes checked to make sure that... Well, I, I, first off, I wish it was that easy that you were literally <laughs> checking them off. But there are certain things you look for. I mean, I would gravitate towards someone like you because you're a big picture thinker and you're not thinking strictly about the coding. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I'm guarded about investing directly with the founder who's the coder. You know, I really am. I find that they're, um, a lot of them are so good at what they do precisely because they are obsessed more by the coding. So I'll give you a very good but hurtful example, <laughs> you. When you came to see me with your first idea yeah. about the education, what was it called? EPROF. EPROF, yep. okay. And I said to you, are profs at universities allowed to do this? Are they allowed to go online? And you didn't know the answer to that question. You should have been embarrassed. That was a key, key answer in your whole business model. But I've seen that kind of thing from coders constantly. They're so crazed by making the site the best it can be, the interface the best it can be, the value add, that they sometimes forget to ask the common sense business questions. Plus, not all coders are going to have the uh, personal skill set. Some do, but not all to build the team out again to think about all these different things, the marketing end. So you've got to find a leader who is very much a very skilled person across a number of different disciplines. The other thing I worry about in tech investing, I don't think it's enough attention, is that 
because so many of the people starting these firms are very young, they yeah. tend not to have a lot of their own capital. Yeah. And therefore, they turn to the marketplace and the super angel investors, I think, are kind of the most common first stop and they're getting their first 100, 200, 300,000 there, but they don't have capital in. And the problem with that is if they run into a very tough time, forget pivoting, they often tend to just go a different direction and walk away and start something else. And you know, you like them to have more capital in because frankly, it buys you a little bit more commitment. It buys you a little bit more stick to yeah. There's no doubt that that kind of uh, panic that can set in when your own money's on the line mm -hmm. tends to drive a more creative approach. So I worry a little bit about that. You don't see that too much in the non-tech space. So again, if I'm buying into a balsamic vinaigrette company or I'm buying into a love child baby food <laughs> product, they've already put their life savings in in most instances. They are fully in here. They are all in. They're not turning around. We're going to run into tough times, but they're going to fight their way through it and together, hopefully, we'll prevail. In tech, sometimes, but not all, that's not the case and it's fairly easy. I got no money in this and two years later, I'm going to go a different way, especially since a lot of the tech founders are very creative. They're always reading, they're always talking, they're always seeing new ideas and they're pulled in different directions. So it's very difficult and, and the whole pivot thing, I mean, to some extent, it's a little overplayed. Uh, you know, I mean, I think if they're pivoting the same space, then great, you still should have ownership, but a lot of them are, of course, moving to a totally different spot. So all of this is, is very tricky to figure out. It really is. But I would say the hardest thing to evaluate and the thing I don't read much about with all the reading I do is trying to assess the founder's ability to build a team. Yep. Very difficult to do that, but you at least should be trying. So I've got to look at someone like you and you come to me and you say, Dave, I want 500,000. Here's kind of where I'm headed. Again, I've got to meet with you several times and I've got to be asking you questions about your marketing, but I've also got to be trying to figure out, are you a good communicator? Are you likable? Are you somebody who's going to be a good leader? Are you someone with enough charisma and the command of the language is going to be able to motivate the team, draw them in, keep them there during the tough times? Are you going to be able to make the tough decision to let people go when they're not a good fit? All those types of things. I'll never get it all right, by the way. I mean, I'll yeah. make lots of mistakes, but that effort has to be put in. And I think in tech, unlike in other areas, you don't see much of that. Oftentimes, the founder, again, doesn't have a lot of those leadership skills and some of the communication skills. I've seen some firms in KW where the founder has been, this is a little bit unfair, but very much the stereotype of the geeky coder yeah. and not a lot of charisma and personal skills in terms of motivating the troops and building out the team, yet has found the funding, but in many cases it hasn't worked out for anybody. So that's an interesting note about kind of education for founders, you know, the main things that you mentioned that are important, sales, digital marketing, team building doesn't seem like those are really things that you can learn in a traditional university setting. And that's not a knock on the university system as much as it's just reality. You have to get those in the real world. And I, and I think people like you who started out, you've been involved at, at a number of different levels and you've worked for firms, you're out there seeing a lot of these things and you start wondering, and I'm not sure I'm right on this, but are we better to have our entrepreneurs start companies at 25 to 27 than we are at 20 to 21? is that four or five years involvement with other people's startups yeah. and seeing what goes wrong, what can go right. I mean, look how much you've learned yep. in the last three or four years. It's put you in a much better position to succeed with whatever you do next, right. much better. Yep. And I think that, again, it might be different from person to person, and hey, heaven knows we've got a lot of 21-year-olds have proven they could do it right <laughs> out of the gate. But yep. I think in general, you can't get those skills in the university slash college environment. You may have to pick them up in the real world. And, but some of them learn it through failure. Right? I mean, they go out and they fail and they learn, okay, where did it go wrong? I think you're very good that way. You're constantly self-assessing, you know, where could I get stronger? But you've also looked at the organizations you've been involved with and said, hey, we screwed up here. And in fact, I've, I've liked the way when we've talked on the phone a couple of times, you, you said, I screwed up. I misassessed other people's skills. Yeah. And you've taken the responsibility for that. But it goes back to what we said earlier. Boy, you've got to get to know the founders well. Yeah. And not just as an investor, but as a potential employee slash partner. Is this where you want to invest the next two years of your 
life. And it's so easy to fall in love with the idea. But again, you've got to have a lot of skills to bring these ideas to market successfully. So let's talk about the investments that you do like to make. It's always really stuck out to me. Like I've always been very digital minded, but you're always talking about the balsamic vinaigrettes yeah. of the world and the you know the the hard products that you know because you're so analytical, you can break down and analyze you know so much of the market opportunity um, from a from a science perspective and spreadsheets and that type of thing. But what do you like? What attracts you most to an investment? And you know, what are the uh, and you you get very creative with like your deal structures too, like looking for royalties and ways to protect yourself in different ways. So Yeah, I've tried to introduce some liquidity into a lot of the deals because, boy, if there's no takeout, getting your monies back through a slow uh, chain of dividends is very difficult. In fact, I'll go through a math example of that in a moment. So I don't ever do the royalties to be greedy. I do them for protection, but they're often deferred. So they're deferred several years down the road until you've got the cash flow to justify it and so on and so forth. But I've, I've really enjoyed analyzing all the deals. And I've done, you know, certainly uh, quite a few in the den, I think 22 closed deals, but lots outside too. Yeah. And, you know, everything's a little bit different. But the advantage playing in the, in the uh, non-digital space is that my contacts can really help. And so if I get involved in a balsamic vinaigrette, I can often get the meetings with the food services companies or a big buyer at one of the major grocery chains. Now, you can't close the deal. It still has to be a great product. They have to sell effectively, but you can open doors for them, no question about it. And you can help them uh, meet people at the, the Federal Development Bank or Export Development. So the contact part of it plays a big role. Sometimes even making the investment alone makes a big difference because the credibility. You know, all of a sudden people go, hey, he wouldn't have done this if he hadn't done a thorough due diligence. And plus, I've, I've been able to learn a lot being involved in all these different businesses and kind of import the knowledge from one business and take it over to another and to help out on those fronts. So it's been a lot of fun and it's gone well. The problem is it's so much time. Like doing a thorough due diligence on these deals takes three, four weeks minimum. And you do a competitive landscape analysis, you get to know the people really well, you're trying to understand their marketing approach, which of course is pivotal. It takes a lot of time. And then if you're actively involved, in helping a number of them. It can be a little overwhelming, and that's why I left Dragon's Den. But in terms of the experience doing it, it was fantastic. I learned so much. I found it humbling because you realize, again, how hard business is. You also realize how much of a role luck plays. You know, I've been incredibly lucky in my career and really was in the right place at the right time to some extent. I mean, I'm still proud of some of the decisions I made, but there's no doubt I've been very lucky. And I think most of my honest friends would tell you that have had tremendous business success. They had a fair amount of luck too. And again, I'm not trying to take away from what they've been able to do, but luck does play a role, no question. And when you start doing this many due diligences, you're reminded of that again. One of the things though that is, is uh, harsh when you do due diligence is how quickly competition comes now how fierce it is, how much pricing is tough, tough to maintain, margins are tough to maintain over time. I mean, business is difficult. You've got to be quick, you've got to be clever, and you've got to be constantly challenging yourself. How do we add more value for our customer, for our client? If you're always looking to help your customer and client more, that's what stirs on the creative juices that helps you to add new products, improve the ones you have, all those types of things. So when I used to ask, going back to what you're saying, what do I look for? You're still looking at the people. Yeah. No question about it. But you're looking, can you, with your skill set, add value in a lot of instances? And that's why I think with tech, I've almost now exclusively started looking at fintech ideas. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where, with my background and my contacts and my brand, I can add value. Whereas the other tech spaces, I may invest, but I don't make a difference. I just sit back and watch passively. I'd rather be more proactively involved, and that's why I've ended up focusing on that space. Plus, I find it fascinating. And I think it's, it's full of opportunities. I just don't think the ones I've seen yet have been the best examples of way to exploit those. So much of your uh, your knowledge and the way you write is tailored to the baby boomer generation, right? It is. With, with Gen Y now, um, I mean, I was thinking about my, my next challenge is going to be, you know, how do I know that I'm financially ready to start a business, right? Like the movement in the market now is, or just in society, is that 
you know, people aren't looking at long tenured careers where they have pensions and they have, yeah, you know, not at all. That, that model is completely different now, yeah. right? It's so much turnover. People are looking to start a business and be a startup founder rather than a corporate exec, right? So they, I, I think... Uh, but don't you love that, that part? Like, I think that when I meet young kids now, the best and the brightest, they all want to create. Yeah. They all want to make a difference. And it sounds corny, but they really do. Yeah. And I think that's healthy. I think in the long term, that's a very good thing for society and probably good to happen now because jobs now... Are very challenged, as you say. The security is gone. In fact, it's amazing the difference between public sector employees now and <laughs> private sector. Like it's almost impossible to overstate how big it is. And when, I mean, the public sector employee has, in most cases, very good job security, outstanding benefits, yep. pension. In fact, in some cases, still very good defined benefit pensions. None of those exist yep. for ninety percent of the people yeah. in the private sector. People are let go left and right. I remember a few years ago, I made a list of twenty of my closest friends who weren't professionals and weren't involved in the public sector. So they weren't teachers or doctors or lawyers, that type of thing, but they were out there working for the private sector. And 12 of them, I think, had lost their job at some point in the previous five years. That's just the way it is now. And so the job security is gone, and, and I think a lot of kids see that. And so they see that, they want to make a difference, they've come through emphasizing creativity in some of their courses, and now they're looking to start something up. That all being said, it's still tough to be successful in business. You know, it's great to be an entrepreneur, but it's tough. I mean, it's lonely sometimes, and you're always going to have uh, challenges, and things change, and you've got to be able to adjust quickly. And that's another thing, going back to previous uh, points about trying to assess the skill set of the founder, you have to see an adaptability there. And that's one of the things Bruce Croxton talks about. He's always trying to assess is, okay, yeah, this person is skilled, but are they flexible? Can they see another opportunity or when something's not going so well, will they create a way around that? Are they going to be able to adapt? And again, can you imagine how tough it is to assess all this? That's why I'm still blown away that a lot of these investments are made so quickly. Like I get the whole accelerator model, you interview them for nine minutes because you're not putting a ton of money in, frankly, and you're playing the numbers game. But that next round, when people are writing the checks for three and four hundred thousand, even if you're ultra rich, that's still a lot of money. Yep. I'm amazed how quickly some people make those decisions, like quite literally off a 40-minute meeting. That doesn't make much sense to me. Well, that you know the the investment I mentioned, where I invested in actually a guy who pitched on Dragons. Then, you know, I I invested. I made that investment at twenty two or twenty three, yeah. right? And that was my first angel investment. Um, didn't go so well, and I made it kind of on a whim, right? I mean, I got to know the guys over a couple of months, and they're you know great guys and brilliant entrepreneurs. But you know, the the they never really pursued all the stuff that they were talking about, um, and I just I was too blind to see that. Right now, so, is this an example of what we we're speaking about? They didn't have a lot of their own capital in. Yeah. And then they don't have the same sense of loyalty and stick to to the project. And again, by the very nature of the kind of people being drawn into tech entrepreneurism, they're dynamic, creative people, and they're always seeing other ideas. That's just the nature of the beast. So if they don't have a lot of capital tied up in this one and they're running into some struggles, they'll tend to go and gravitate over there. How do you lock them into all this? It's, it's a tricky, tricky situation. And so if you see some of the firms out there, they're now preferring to come in later and so they're having to pay a much higher valuation, but they're able to de-risk it a little bit because traction's been established, there's clients, the marketing programs are proving themselves out a little bit, but also you've been able to establish whether the founder's got the stick and the skill set to stay. So it's a different way to invest, and we're seeing some of that. But a good point that was made in an article recently online about Canada is we, we have a fair number of those types of investors. We don't have the same number of Silicon Valley investors who are pirates, was the word he used, who are willing just to roll the dice and take the crazy chances. So we're not getting enough firms to move from here to the level where some of these Canadian investors can come in. We're missing in that middle gap. But 
I mean, I'm not in there because of the exact things I've spoken about earlier. I'm a little afraid of that gap. <laughs> and so it, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it really is to assess all of this stuff and do it well. And, you know, you've been burnt once going forward. But I think as someone like you, you should be saving your capital to invest in your own. And, you know, and trying to fund your own enterprise when you get the right idea and just making sure you know how to build out your team and everything else. So you're looking at kind of starting a new big idea pretty soon. Like, I'd love to know a little bit more about your, yeah. your process and what you're thinking and what opportunities you see. Well, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed every part of my career. Uh, I really have. And I, I love the last few years with Dragon's Den. It's being back out speaking because of the second book and getting involved in all these businesses. But I made a decision about six or eight months ago that I want to do one more big thing. I may write again too, but that's in addition to one more big thing, and it wouldn't be on finance. And so I, I uh, got really busy last uh, spring finishing up commitments. And uh, I decided to leave Dragon's Den. I sold a property in Costa Rica. I sold one business. I've cut way back on my speaking, and I've tried to clear the deck. And so I've gone on a reading binge and just trying to read everything I can to stimulate thinking about where I can head next. I think FinTech is certainly an obvious spot to look at, but that's not the only thing I'm looking at. In fact, I've even looked at a couple tech ideas completely unrelated uh, to financial. And so it's, it, people are surprised that I would look at them, but just ideas that I think have uh, some merit and I'm looking at some old fashioned uh, ideas as well, including one in TV, not with me being on TV, but a, a TV idea. But I'm trying to make a decision over the next few months and then throw my resources behind it. I'd like to do less traveling. Yep. You know, at 53, I found the last three years to be a lot harder than they were in my 30s, especially the red eyes. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, it's tough. And I was doing two and three weeks sometimes. And I'm, I'm very happy at home, too. So I, I didn't want to be awake quite as much. But I'm excited. And, you know, I'm, I'm not close to retiring. I don't think I would ever even contemplate that. I can't see retiring in my life. I love work. I'm more excited when I've got an idea or I'm sitting down with the young people like you and your ideas than I ever would be golfing every day. And you've seen me golf, so you understand. <laughs> you understand that. So... You know, one thing that's always stuck out to me is you're, exactly like you just said, you're reading constantly and you're very focused on kind of honing your analytical brain, right, and just, you know, consuming knowledge. And that's something that we talked about the other day where that's kind of being lost in translation these days with, with digital, right? Like, you know, me personally, I've kind of tried to take a step back and say, you know, I know that I want to be able to speak better. That's why I'm doing these podcast right. interviews to be, you know, better at speaking on the spot, writing well, uh, being quick with mental math, that type of stuff. So... What are your thoughts just generally on kind of today's youth, especially being over-dependent on technology? It, it's so true. I mean, I hate to give in to that stereotype, but it is so true. I mean, especially men, and the research proves this, we can't get young men reading anything beyond 20 sentences anymore. The problem is most wisdom takes a lot longer than that to convey. And so you've got books like we talked about, Zero to One. What a great book. What a fresh book. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it, no, no angle that he took really was similar to ones you've seen in other spots. I mean, whether you agreed or disagreed with him, he's obviously a brilliant guy, way sharper than I am, but I agreed with most of what he said, but he made you think. Bold, another book that's sitting right here, outstanding book in terms of talking where we sit, The Second Machine Age, all of these are great books. You've got to read. You know, there's so much happening out there that you need some of these very sharp people to come at it from a different perspective, but also to curate it a little bit and to wrap it up and to say, here's the big picture of where we're headed, because it's from the big picture you start figuring out the right ideas, the right tools, etc. I think that it's more important now than ever. Now, again, I don't mean you just sit around reading and not taking action, but I think what stimulates creative thoughts are books, yeah. magazine articles, a little bit longer pieces that can really get you going. And I love getting back into that. And I think when you read, you have to read really actively. You've got to be thinking about what they're saying. Yeah. And I've been working with my son a lot on that and getting him to challenge the author's thoughts. Try to guess what he's going to say next because that makes you think about the logical flow. Try to compare what this author's saying to what she said 
in the last book? Why are they disconnected? Why don't uh, they make sense together? Think, think, think while you read. It's a great way to grow your mind. And the more you can do that, the better you're going to do in your own business. But the big point I would make is if you look at almost all the breakthrough ideas, especially in digital, but anywhere, they come from taking an idea from one field and transplanting it over to another. It's the mixing ideas. It's not coming up with something new. It's moving ideas, combining ideas. Well, it's hard to do that if you're not well-read. And so I'm a huge believer you have to be doing all of those things. And I think in your field, where a lot of naturally creative people, great coders, etc., have those skills that reading is going to take them where they need to go next. And certainly, to go back to the first point we made in the podcast, they've got to read more on marketing. You know, I know I'm hitting that theme a lot, but I think you've been around enough the last three years to know that I'm right. It's, it's a little wacky when people are pitching you on a four and five million dollar valuation and have no marketing plan. Like when you sit back and think about that, it's a little strange. And again, even if it was a bad plan, you could say, well, here's why I don't, there's no plan. And so I think reading on that type of thing, and there've been some great books come out now on marketing and all those types of things. I think a great opportunity, by the way, for someone like you with well-rounded skills is to build a marketing company to help a lot of the uh, mm-hmm. startups. Yep. Okay, you've got a good idea. How are we going to eventually get it to market in a successful, cost-effective fashion? How are we going to acquire clients in a cost-effective fashion and become a specialist in all of those things? And I think that could be a great opportunity for someone like you. Even when you just look at the Waterloo ecosystem, nobody's really providing that particular mm-hmm. value add. And I think just in that community, that company would flourish. That's actually a potential sort of future vision for this Hunter and Craft podcast and, and publication. I mean, it's just starting really as a a creative outlet for you know doing these types of things and documenting learning from you know, stuff that I'm going through in my career, but also from great entrepreneurs. Um, and but you know that kind of growth consultancy model is uh, you know kind of growth or marketing team for hire is uh, something that we have played around with for sure. Yeah, and I, you used an expression when you said for hire because I think it's not, that might be a better opportunity. Is you're not going in to consult so much as you're actually going to do it. You're yeah. going to implement it. Yeah. And I think that may be an interesting opportunity. You may do it for equity share. You may do it for an equity share mix with some cash, et cetera, yeah. but I, I think there's good opportunities because it's funny. I've met founders of firms relatively far along. I mean, the, the firms are far, far along in the coding. They've had a couple raises, et cetera. They still don't have a good marketing plan in place, but maybe more interestingly, they can't give you that, okay, here's our dashboard of 10 ideas, and here's ones that similar firms have used in different fields. They're not even at that point yet. Well, to me, that's sort of been something that was done right back in day one. You should be growing your thoughts on all those types of things. So providing them that big picture context, here's all the different possibilities for marketing this type of program. Here's why we think this one or this two make more sense than the others. Here's how to get that. Here's how to get at them cost effectively. Here's potential partnerships. Here's companies that are already dealing with your target demographic we may be able to piggyback off of. All those types of things. That kind of thinking is not being done enough. And I think a firm that specialized in that, and you might have to really get down to, okay, we only do it not only for digital, but only for business to business, and only for business to business in a certain area, then I think you really may have something. Totally. Yeah, B2B would definitely be the focus. I mean, so much of my focus over the last year has been B2B software sales. And a big thing that I'm, again, trying to improve is, you know, my speaking. Like, anytime I'm in a sales meeting, asking crisp questions, you know, tolerating silence, that type of thing. And obviously a big um, part of your career that maybe not everyone knows is that you've gone kind of all over the country doing speaking gigs, right? So in terms Yeah, of it's your, really helped me. Yeah, in terms of your public speaking uh, experience, like what are maybe some of the best 
piece of advice you could share to people in terms of improving your public? You know, it's funny. It's tough because I'm I'm not a naturally skilled person. Like I'm really not. You should see me dance. Can't sing. Can't draw. Can't golf. Like it's very frustrating. But speaking was the only thing that kind of came naturally to me. And therefore, strangely, it's tough to give good advice. Yeah. Because I've never really thought about it. It's just kind of something that, for whatever reason, I always always comfortable doing and have enjoyed doing. Uh, but I think you're talking about often a speaking that's not necessarily in front of a crowd, but instead the give and play of standard conversation and developing good listening skills. And it's so difficult not to try to anticipate what the person's saying next and then jump in with the idea that you want to force feed into the conversation <laughs> and just kind of let it flow naturally. You used an expression a moment ago I found interestingly saying tolerating silence. You have to be willing to do that because good speakers and good thinkers are going to take a second to pause and reflect and work through it. But that's uncomfortable for some people. So all of those things, just change the subject a little bit, by the way, going back to reading. You know, another thing I don't think we see enough of now is just pure thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I had a couple of young guys come to work for me a few years ago. They branched out since. They still rent from me. They're doing very well. They're in digital marketing, more for B2C, and they've done very, very well. But they used to just shake their head because they'd often come into my office and see me just sitting in a chair doing nothing, like for two hours. And they'd say, what are you doing? So I'm thinking, like, this is really at the end of the day, more than anything, what's driven the success of the publishing entities is we've thought We've thought a lot about, is that the right call? Like just sitting and thinking. And I think one of the things that helped me in my publishing career was I did a really good job of avoiding meetings. I was not in meetings very much. And so you had time, time to execute and time to think. And so those three or four hours a day that everybody's caught up in meetings, which for the most part never added value, we were able to kind of think. And so the combination of reading to get ideas and to get your creativity going and then sitting back and thinking and even going for car rides. I'd often leave the office in the middle of the day and go for a, a car ride. And people would say, geez, you're, I'm surprised you run a lot of your own errands. But I liked running the errands. They got me out of the office and they got me thinking. Mm -hmm. And so going to the bank or going to pick up something at Staples, to me that wasn't an inconvenience. That was a chance to break away from the routine and the environment that I was accustomed to being in. And again, get fresh thoughts circulating. So all of that goes back to reading and thinking. But on the, on the speaking front, it, it's amazing to me we don't push that skill set more in school. Not just giving a public speech, but just standard communication. Because when you get out in the real world, maybe the number one skill. So when you look at building the team, leading the team, all those types of things, it comes down to your command of the language, your ability to intonate, all those things. And that's like anything else, it takes practice. But in school we do so little of that. Even in presentations in school, it's so PowerPoint reliant that people don't really develop the skills. I mean, 99% of the conversations you have in real life, you don't have PowerPoint there. It's just you and somebody else dialoguing. And you've got to be able to be quick on your feet. And again, you've got to be able to put your sentences together in a positive way and in a proper way. So all that stuff is very interesting. And I think schools are off a little bit on some of the training they do. And I think that even at universities, they're so project-oriented. But I think half the time, you better have just kids go up and say, what did you do last night? Tell me in five minutes what you did last night. And by the way, make it interesting. Because the number one rule of communication, whether it's writing or speaking, is don't bore the listener or reader. Because once you do, you're dead. And I'm telling you, most people forget that rule constantly. And I think that's one place you're seeing tech take some positive steps. So I, I, I'll tell you, I saw a, a piece of software a little while ago, and it was financial planning software. And so you fill it out, and then a couple weeks later, if you've not done a couple things, you were sent reminders, automated reminders. So for example, do you have a will? If you reply no, you get this email saying, did you get your will yet? And I said no. And it comes back, and, or I said yes. And it comes back and it says, you wouldn't lie to a computer, would you? <laughs> I think that's good because yeah. now interacting with the computer is good. So another one is, it says, are you married? I say, no. And it comes back and says, I was married. This is the computer. I was married, and, but my wife was a weather app. And it met, a, it, it, it met a, a accounting app and 
took off on me. They met online, of course. <laughs> and so you laugh, and you think that's, that's funny. And then you're more inclined to want to fill in all the, the information. And because one of the interesting things on B2C is it's proven to be ridiculously hard to get consumers to fill in information on a computer. In fact, Bruce Croxon said to me once, if your idea is relying on people inputting a lot of data, we're probably out. Like, don't tell us a lot more. That's how hard it is to get people to do it. But if you start writing programs that use humor, that changes everything. And I think now we're starting to see we've got to do more of that. We have to communicate more effectively even on those interfaces and it has to have an element of charm and it has to draw people in. And I'll tell you, that, I mean, you look at all these things that are happening, your field's a great example, your particular company. You know who's the king of the world right now? Copywriters. Like, if you're a great copywriter, you write your own ticket now for, forever because everybody needs to know how do you phrase this in the most impactful way? How do you jump out? I mean, we have so little time to capture people's attention. How do you do it? And a lot of the old-fashioned copywriting tips of the 50s and 60s are very effective. And you're seeing it now. I laugh at those ads on uh, all the sites now when you go on a hockey site or whatever. It'll come in there with some guy. He lost 20 pounds with this weird old grandmother's tip. And that's just old-fashioned copywriting. There's something about that. that we, grandmother, you relate to your own grandmother and weird. And it just draws you in to want to click on it. Well, that's, that's back to where we were in the 50s and 60s and away from where we were 10 years ago when it used you know, more uh, technical type things to try to get you to click through. So yeah, copywriting is another idea in this thing. I think if somebody opened up a firm and all it was was online copywriting, that's all we do. So whatever you're doing, we're not gonna design your strategy, we're not gonna be too involved in your sales, but whatever you're doing online with your strategy, we'll write the copy. I think a firm like that would kill because <laughs> most people know that that's a very, very tough skill to nail. So speaking of writing, you know, we've never actually, I mean, I've known you forever and we've never actually really talked about, you know, your process for writing and how you came to write, you know, those, those books, right? And, you know, me now with, with this project, I'm trying to write as much as possible, right? I'm trying to really write from the heart and, you know, just speak to the stuff that I know best, right? Because that's when, yep. you know, writing is uh, typically the strongest. So, you know, if you were, if you were me right now, um, looking back, thinking back to when you first wrote The Wealthy Barber, like, what was... What was that process like in terms of coming to you know have the idea execute on it and then the self-publishing thing I want to get into a little bit too because that's a very interesting business decision that you like made. writing the both bar was hard because you know at that time I had no experience writing but also it was a tough task to try to take it and fictionalize the whole thing and not use charts and mm -hmm. graphs and use math and and uh, I mean a lot of ways I just outworked that project my, my natural writing skills were not great at all uh, unfortunately. So I had to really work hard at it. But I did something that's very, I think, going to resonate with you because it's very much the lean approach is that I tested the book as I went along. And you know, it's funny, I assumed a lot of people did that. And I found out after the fact nobody did that. And I started out by accident. I gave it to a few people and they didn't particularly like it. What a huge break because I went into a little bit of panic and I thought I better test this with more people. And I went away from the experts I'd given it to and I gave it to the target market, obviously a much yep. better decision, and yep. they loved it. In fact, it was the guys on my slow pitch team giving me great feedback that really buoyed my confidence because they don't like books for the most part. And now they're waiting for next chapter, next chapter, and they're asking me questions. So not only did I get the confidence of the positive feedback, more importantly, I started injecting a lot of their questions and comments right into the manuscript. I thought, hey, if 10 out of 12 guys in my slow pitch want to know this, my slow pitch team want to know this, the average Canadian probably wants to know it. And so I learned a lot from that. And again, that very much is like the new way they teach you, fail fast and everything else and fail forward. And so I kept taking it out. And with the second book, 
I gave each of those small chapters to 50, 60 people in the target audience, and I would rewrite them based on the feedback. And if, you know, if it's only one person saying something, you're not going to make an alteration. But if you get a big percentage of people saying, still don't understand this, or I didn't find this one funny, or blah, 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 you're obviously going to make changes. So by the time the book hits the shelves, you know, because you've done so much market testing, that it's going to be quite well received. You're never going to hit a home run with everybody, but you know it's going to be well received. So the problem with that is that writing process takes a lot of time. So to do that, it's a year and a half, and I'm on yeah. full-time when I'm doing these books, and yeah. both books took about the same time. And, and I mean, full-time, I didn't only speak during those year and a half. So I mean, that, that is a sacrifice, and whether or not most people are willing to do that, I don't know. I liked your last piece because it sounded like you, and I think that's one of the keys to writing. It has to be authentic, and it has to sound like your traditional voice. And it also sounded introspective, like you were actually analyzing your own behavior, and people can relate to that. You're not just out there rah-rah. You're saying, I have some weaknesses. In fact, your first line really made me laugh. And you said something about your work is okay but not terrific. And that's a pretty funny thing to say when you're yeah. writing on the company site. Like, I thought that was funny. It really jumped at me. Yeah. And then Scotty, my son, read it. And he goes, didn't I think Evan's first line was a bit weird? <laughs> but that's, thought that's, it was going to get canned. Exactly. But yeah. that's interesting because two people, we read, read it, we both thought about that first line. Well, in a way, that's good writing because we're right back to earlier. You're trying to stimulate thought. You're trying to rise above the noise. Something about that strange first line did that. But also, it set the tone for, okay, this guy's pretty honest. He's writing on a company website, and he says his job's okay right now, but not great. So he's kind of got me hooked, and I'm going to read the rest of this. And so I, I think that you have a good feel for what is likely to take people on. And it's got to be honest. I mean, you know, in the second book, I talked about mistakes I'd made yep. in the first book. And then 30 years later, obviously, if you have learned something... And you haven't changed your mind on something. You're an idiot. And so, you know, hopefully you do learn from your mistakes and do all those types of things. I decided to self-publish, by the way, not because I'm a control freak. I, I am a bit of one. But because I couldn't get a publisher to give me the special sales rights. So I trusted the publishers to represent me in the bookstore as well. Mm -hmm. But I didn't trust them to sell to the corporations successfully because they don't do that well. And so I decided to self-publish. Then Stoddart came along after a year or so and said, okay, we've changed our mind. We'll take the bookstores over, but you can buy the books from us at cost and sell them into the corporate market, and that'll be your exclusive domain. And I thought that's a great combination because I'm so busy now. Service in the bookstores was overwhelming. But that's why I self-published. But it was what a lucky stroke because obviously it was lucrative, selfishly. But more importantly, I had to learn everything about publishing from scratch. And two important points about that. Number one, it laid the foundation for my partnership with Janet and Greta. Because when they came out, I had been through it once, and I was able to duplicate a lot of the approaches we took. But the second thing I learned is that it's great going to a field you know nothing about. You have no legacy thinking. You have no preconceived notions. And that's why even all these years later, 53 now, I was 25 then, that's why I'm still fairly confident that I don't have to stick to fintech. Because in some ways, I think it's better to go to an area where people go, what the hell is Dave Chilton doing there? He doesn't know anything about that. Because not knowing anything, you don't have blinders on and in publishing, it was extreme. Like, I didn't know when I started publishing that all books are returnable. I didn't even know that. So I printed all my books. I went to see Coles. There was no chapters. It was Smith and Coles. And the guy says, we, we're buying a 1,000, but we're returning them if they don't sell. I said, you're not returning my book. And he goes, all books are returnable. And I said, not my book. And I said, you're not returning my book. And I honestly said to the guy, my mom, my grandma, my mom, pardon me, fills the orders on Sundays. I'm not going to ask her to take them back, too. Like, we don't have the facilities. Today. We're doing it out of our garage. And he's looking at me like, is this guy nuts or something? <laughs> What's he talking about his mom filling orders? But he said, okay, that's fine. We'll buy them non-returnable. And I never sold the Wealthy Barber returnable. Nice. It was non-returnable the whole time. And people always ask me, how did you do that? And I said, because I, I, I didn't know you couldn't. If I'd known you couldn't, I wouldn't have. And I found the same thing with Janet and Greta. Like, you know, when they came to see me, 
they said they were going to sell a million copies of Looney Spoons in Canada. And I was laughing my head off. I said, guys, you're not going to sell a million copies of Looney Spoons in Canada. I mean, the best-selling cookbook ever, I think, was 500-something. But I said, you know, we'll probably sell 50,000. I said, but I'm an optimistic guy. It's a great book. Maybe we'll sell 200,000. But they thought million because they thought lots of books sold a million. And I said, no, I think it's like two books ever in Canada sold a million at that time. So you're going to sell a million copies. Well, they sold 850,000 copies in their first 18 months. And I think a lot of it was because they just set this goal, this crazy goal, and didn't know that it really wasn't possible. So not knowing much about publishing, they had all kinds of innovative ideas, by the way. So they came into publishing with just thinking. And they were always coming up with ideas. And so they went on a home shopping network in Canada. And of course, Smith and Coles get in touch with them and say, are you guys crazy? You're selling two for one on the shopping network. And we're selling one for one here. Our customers are going to be livid. This is bad for business. And Jan and Greta said, you know, we don't sell many there, but we get great exposure. This was back when there's only 30 channels and people were flipping. No PVR, no Netflix, no nothing. And they said, people aren't going to buy it, but they're going to see it. They're going to hear the brand power and then your sales are going to go up. You give us a month. We're on the station a lot in the next couple weeks. If your sales go down instead of up, we won't go on the station again. Our sales tripled in the weeks after we were on the home shopping network. And again, the fact that they didn't know what they were doing, and they would even try these things and say it was all a big plus. And so I think a lack of experience can be very healthy. And I think a lot of people your age tend to think that way. And I'm always guarded about listening to experts. Sounds funny coming from Dragonstone, but I really am. I mean, again, if you have an expert in a field, they, they've seen it one way. They've done it one way, and to their credit, he or she's done it very successfully. But then they think that's the way it has to be done always and that's not the case at all and I, I wonder if you look at the Dragon's Den investments that have done well so the kind of the 10 or 15 that have really really gone well over the years it'd be interesting but I'll bet you almost all of them have come with Dragon's partners out of their field so in my case you know Steve T and those like you know obviously didn't know you know it wasn't my business and I wonder if you would see that and so you think well Jim's probably best to line up with a restaurant well, but I wonder if that's the case I mean that'd be an interesting thing to look at maybe he's added more value outside of the restaurant investments because he's taken what he's learned in one field and transposed it but also because he hasn't thought this is the way you have to do it this is the way I did it so this is the way you should do it because you can't think that way there's all kinds of new ways to come at all these things I was curious to know how obviously you know the market and just the world in general is so different from Wealthy Barber 1 to Wealthy Barber Returns I think how did kind of digital in the internet I mean I know that you're not much of a tech guy but how did that kind of change that experience if at all not, not a whole lot. You know what's funny though? I think if it came out today, even four years ago, it wasn't yeah. quite where it is now. Yeah. It, it really wasn't. And, and even the digital media, like the conventional media still dominated book sales and now you've got Huffington Post and all of them have picked up more momentum. But certainly it's different. But you know, ebook sales have flattened, interestingly. And a lot of people still like holding a book in their hands. You know how they have that offer in Canada, you can buy all the magazines, I think it's Rogers Magazines, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how many friends I've had who have purchased that and then have found they haven't used it much. Magazines, for some reason, they like holding them and they even like looking at the ads. Yeah. That's a part of the whole thing for them. I actually like holding magazines and I still read the physical newspapers, except the Detroit papers. I buy the papers every single day and read them. But I think it, it you know, it certainly it's changed. I think the biggest way it's changed is the amount of financial information you compete with online. Yeah. That's the hardest part. And some of it's fantastic. And some of these financial bloggers in Canada are great. And so they're not the ones working for the mainstream media. There's some woman in Toronto who's writing on statement, Carrie Taylor. Her stuff is fantastic. It's funny, it's well edited, and it's interesting. And she's got great stuff. So instead of now competing with six other books, I'm competing with 
everybody on the internet and a lot of them are good. And so that makes it difficult. And obviously they can update on an ongoing basis. They can add videos. They've got all kinds of media approaches. They can connect through links. They can connect through podcasts like you are. They can build more of an ongoing relationship. Now I could do that because I could take the book as one thing and then add a whole lot of other things. And frankly, I probably would have done more of that had I not got caught up with a couple things right after book launch. But yeah, the competition now trying to advance information is crazy. And cookbook sales are interesting because for a while they held up beautifully versus digital because nobody wanted to take a tablet into a kitchen and spill oil. They, they don't mind doing that with their book. But now it's so tough with online. You can punch in, here's what ingredients I have at home right now. Can just based on these, can you spit out a re and 12 automated recipes come through and you can even say healthy and by the way, I can't have gluten and here's three more. <laughs> and so that's tough for cookbooks to compete with. Same with kids books. You know, there's, there's a thing online that uh, I don't know if it's actually out right now and I actually looked at doing this. I like the idea so much. You take a, a picture of your kid and then an algorithm converts the photo to a cartoon and another one injects the cartoon and the kid's name, your parent's name, into the story that they've written, a generic story. So now your kid goes online and it's not just him, it's him, him. Like he's not just reading, he's in the story. It's Evan. Evan's playing with his dog with the same dog name. It's Simon and his, his dad. Like that's pretty cool. And he's winning the hockey game and he's reading all this and that's all done generically. It's just the names and faces there. That's pretty cool stuff. Wow. Well, how do you compete with that? <laughs> you know, all this. And so, you know, he's seeing all this stuff, 3D printing. I'm fascinated by 3D printing. And now you, you go to weddings and the people on the top of the wedding cake, it's the bride and groom. They've sent pictures of them in and they've 3D printed them for the top of the cake. Like, wow. <laughs> all that stuff is kind of wacky when you think about it, eh? So I want to talk about the, the, the listeners that are going to be tuning into this are mostly, you know, this site is built for kind of people in our generation, right? Like, you know, 20 to 30 yeah. kind of looking at uh, starting businesses, which is, you know, the demographic of, of Courtney and Scott are obviously. So what are kind of the key things, um, you know, for people out there, if they're going to take away anything from this in terms of, you know, advancing their lives, advancing their business careers, some of the core best pieces of advice that you would want them to know? Well, you're always looking to learn and grow. It sounds corny, but we've talked about the importance of reading. My daughter launched her speech last recently, and I mean, I was just amazed at how much work she put in ahead of that. Holy smokes. Like, she just she just read everything she could. She looked at every site, not just competing site, but sites that were somewhat like her, or sites that might use the same marketing that she did. And she was research. I would say that's the thing she did unbelievably well. And so, yeah, you have to have a biased action. And I know a lot of people here say, just do it. But I still think that has to be tempered with the fact that you can just do it a few months down the road when you're more prepared. And I think she struck all the right balances. I really do. I was, and I didn't give her much help at all. She asked me very little, but she went over to the Far East to source things, arranged for the importing, figured how she was going to put them all together. But while she was doing that, whether she was on the road in a hostel or whether she was at home in a basement, she was nonstop reading, nonstop going to sites, putting together. Like you should see it. It's like a war room. If you go into her office, it's actually very impressive. She has pin boards everywhere. She has whiteboards everywhere with all of her flow charts on marketing, which sites to get in touch with, what other people have done. It's in my whole house in the living room is covered with this stuff. She's got it everywhere because she turned that into her office, but it's the way to do it. And so she hit the ground running a week and a half ago on launch. It's doing really well. She's been able to attract a lot of attention. No background in business, no background in marketing. I just think it's a lot of common sense. You know, she used that really well. It's interesting watching Scott because his business is an old-fashioned business. His business is trying to help publishers to move their books to unusual locations. That's mail, email maybe, but sometimes traditional mail, and door knocking. 
you're out there trying to get people excited again. So that's good for him. He's got a nice personality, and, and I think that in some of the digital efforts he's done, where he's done email campaigns, I said, that's too bad because you lose, I think, what you're best at, which is connecting with, with people. But again, he's, he's become, strangely, quite good at reading, something he hated. He was never a particularly aggressive student, didn't love school, didn't embrace it at all. But now, as an entrepreneur, he's realized, you know what, you know, I'll bug him to read bold, he'll oh, crap, I don't really want to read bold. And then he'll come back and say, geez, that one chapter on the crowdsourcing, I mean, I got three good ideas from that. And, you know, I mean, I know this sounds like a little bit over the top and some of your listeners may roll their eyes, but I bought a book for $19.95 back in the mid-80s called um, A Thousand One Ways to Market Your Books by John Kremer, K-R-E-M-E-R. -E -E that book made me millions of dollars. I bought it for $19.95. And it wasn't just the fact he had a ton of good ideas, but he got me thinking. I realized, cripe, there really are a million ways to sell books. You don't have to stick them in a bookstore and go into Canada Amp. There are a million ways to sell books. And that made me a fortune and because it really did jolt me. And it's one book. And I think, again, even looking at some of the books I push on my kids, like I think Cordy would tell you, geez, a couple of these books have made huge differences. Plus, there's some amazing books now. Like there's some books on how to use Facebook as a marketing vehicle. And there's some, you know, generic books that are okay too. But there's some nitty-gritty, thick books with every tip in there. And then, you know, you say, well, yeah, but the book will be out of date almost right away. But remember, they all link now to their sites where they give you the ongoing updates and you can download them, et cetera. So I know I'm repeating myself, but you've got to be a reader and you've got to organize your day in such a fashion that you find time to learn, grow, come up with new ideas. I think the other thing I've been pushing the kids on and Cordy's scuffling with a bit is prioritizing to what's important over what's urgent. She is so caught up in the day right now and actually filling the orders. And then one man shows she's running the errands and all of a sudden it'll be four o'clock and I'll say, what, what marketing have you done today? What emails? Well, I haven't got to that yet. Gotta be so careful of that in business. So when I started out in '89, I made all those same mistakes. We were filling the wealthy barber order, self-published at that time, running the errands, doing the accounting, all the administrative tasks, and then all of a sudden it's 3:30, and you haven't sent a single kid out to the media, which was the backbone of the brand building we were doing. And I realized pretty quickly something's got to give. And I know again, unsophisticated, I got my mom to start filling all the orders and running the errands, and that freed up three or four hours a day, and I dedicated those three or four hours a day to marketing. I got back to Courtney today and said, "You've got to do the same type of thing." Even at a business like yours, you know, which more sophisticated, bigger business, a lot more employees, I will guarantee you there are many times during the day you can look at different people there, yourself included, and say, is this the most important thing I can be doing? Is this the one that's going to add most long-term value to our company? Probably 75% of the time you're going to say no. Yeah. You get caught up in either trivialities or in, again, what's urgent over what's important. And you've really got to watch that. And I think that requires a constant assessing of things. And my father used the old-fashioned to-do list but prioritized them and constantly asked himself those questions as he went through the stroking process, the writing down. He was very good at doing all of that. And again, this is a lot of it goes back. Remember Stephen Covey and his seven habits of highly effective people and his time management system. I still haven't seen a more logical, well-thought-through approach than his. And I think that when you're young, you've really got to drive yourself from that. Because at the end of the day, you always want to say, have I advanced the marketing ball? Have I made it more likely we're going to be adding clients or getting more business from the clients we have or helping the clients we have more, which those two things match up? Have I advanced that ball fairly far? Man, there's a lot of days when you say, no, I got sidetracked with three meetings and this and that and none of those things happen. So you got to be careful. And then the last thing I would say flows from something you said in your piece the other day. I believe that these digital devices are killing people's productivity. I believe they're constantly looking at it. It's almost like a red light addiction. 
and they have to do it, and it disrupts their thinking, and it makes it very difficult to flow. I flew up to Whistler last week, flew to Vancouver and drove to Whistler, and I was reading Bold in another book, and the flight, five hours, and I'm thinking about it, I'm making notes. I got more done in those five hours reading this book than I normally do, sitting somewhere reading it for 15, because while I'm reading it, I'm constantly looking at my phone, returning an email, return, re, re, returning a tweet, seeing what's up with Patrick Kane case, blah, 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 and all of a sudden, your productivity's down 60 and 70%, maybe more, because you're not thinking. That aggressive reading I talked about earlier where you're trying to match up to the thinking and saying, is that right? How can I use that? You're not taking the time to do that when you're sidetracked by your device. I found writing the second book was tough because with all these digital tools available, you go to research something and you get sidetracked while you're researching. You know, you look at your hockey pool and next thing you know, there's 15 minutes gone that you couldn't have done 20 years earlier. And I think you have to be really disciplined to guard against that. So I've made some changes lately. I'm not taking my phone into restaurants. I want to be more fair to the people you're with, obviously. But at home, I'm doing something very simple. I just look at it every 30 minutes. So I'll take five minutes every 30 minutes, look if there's anything important. If not, I'll accumulate them. But if it is, I'll address it. But I won't look at it on a well-I-go well I go basis because I think that's very unproductive. Nice. Love that. Those are great tips. It's, I'm still trying to find, again, in that, in that post, trying to find the formula for you know, the productivity, finding time to read, finding time, you know, batching your emails, different things like that. To really it's it's tough. Productive. Like I, I said jokingly the other day, but maybe I wasn't jokingly, that I think I used to be a productive member of society until I got Netflix. Because I did a lot of my best thinking at night. Like I'd finish my touring and finish my speaking. I'd get back to my hotel room and I'd think, okay, I can't sleep because you're kind of get, you know, going there. And I'd take two or three hours to think. Now I'm watching some Spanish fleeing mystery <laughs> on Netflix with subtitles until one in the morning. So not only am I not thinking, I'm tired the next day. Like Netflix is killing me. Yeah. And it's addictive. And it, it's so addictive. And again, if you watch one episode and, they, and it's good, you think, oh, I'll just watch one more. And all of a sudden it's 1.30 in the morning. So my last point is going to sound like a father, but I, you know, I am a father. I, I, there's two things I notice among kids, and I don't care if they're entrepreneurs or not, but I think you'll find this interesting. Number one, they're too tired. Kids are not getting enough sleep now. And your, your parents will verify it. We were pretty big partiers on weekends or very social, but not during the week. People did not go out for dinner like you guys do during the week. And, you know, we didn't have the number of stimulants. So, I mean, obviously, we couldn't manage our hockey pool until 11 at night or watch all the hockey games. I mean, if I was a Red Wing fan, I saw three games a year. So I'm not saying I wouldn't have. Uh, if I were a kid now, I probably would have. But that doesn't change the fact that I find so many kids tired. They don't have the energy you need to tackle business on a day-after-day -day basis. You still have to eat well. You still got to get your sleep. Those things are absolutely imperative. But the second one's going to sound really corny. You got to stay hydrated. <laughs> and, you know, the more you read... The more doctors are saying, this is brutal. We've got not only seniors not staying hydrated, but kids in their 20s. They're drinking pop, diet pop, not, wa not water very much at all anymore. Nobody's using as much milk as they used to. And every time they, they look at them, they say they're a little bit dehydrated. Well, that affects your thinking and it compounds your sleepiness issue. I believe in all those things because at the end of the day, I think a huge percentage of success flows from your energy. Whether you're smart, not smart, if you have a high energy approach and you, and you want to make things happen, you normally can't even if your natural skill set, skill set is not great, but you have to have high energy. And I think so anything you do, decisions you make, are really about, okay, is this going to adversely affect my energy? And if so, is the trade-off worth it? Occasionally you're going to go out and party, obviously you think it is worth it, but you've got to watch all those balances. And you know, as you know, I don't drink, and I think it was one of the best decisions I made in my career. I started not drinking in 89 when I headed out with the wealthy barber because I didn't want to be ever hung over the next day or drained in any way, shape, or form, and, and that was a good call. 
because you know I think my energy therefore has been very positively impacted. Plus, I'm lucky; I don't need a lot of sleep. But I get mad at Scott, for example, because he does need a fair amount of sleep, and then he doesn't get it, and then he's drained at work. And I mean, how often now in your generation do you see kids on Mondays, you know, are just not productive? It's it's commonplace. Courtney, when she started up her company, had several of her friends admit that to her and said, you know, some of the words that she was using on her jewelry, that word's perfect for me because I'm brutal Monday, even sometimes Tuesday, because I partied so hard on the weekend. Well, A, it's unfair to your employer, but if you're an entrepreneur, it's unfair to yourself. You've got to learn to strike a different balance. So if you look at the, the two guys that came to work for me, they were at that 23-24 phase. They started making very good judgment calls, like we're never going out two nights in a row. We're only going out one weeknight, putting in kind of the rules that you're talking about establishing for yourself. Ryan, who's a very self-disciplined guy, would say, I would go Friday night and I would maybe party, but I would not go out Saturday night and party too much because I felt the residue came right through until Monday. But also, he thought Sunday was an important day to have energy because he even wanted energy when he rested. When he had his relaxing day, he, then he felt he really went back Monday refreshed. So they were smart enough to start putting in those types of things. But I'm not a big believer in having a very active social life on weeknights. I, I'm not a big believer in that. I think that time can use, be used very productively to read and, and get organized and work out and I play sports, all those types of things. And again, I don't mean to sound like a no fun guy. Like I like going out for dinner too for a couple hours. But in your generation, there's a strange number of people who will find themselves eating dinner out three nights three weeknights out of four. A, that's, I don't know where everybody's getting the money, but B, that's, I think that's too much. That's a wrap on our 10th episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Dave again for joining us. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at wealthy underscore barber and make sure to join the Hunter and Craft community on our site. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you can keep in touch with our episodes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time.